looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real Podcast for Hardcore Cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we've got Stephen Simpson, co-host of the Pop Culture Gamers Podcast from the UK. And people who don't know this, Stephen Simpson and I are basically strangers. We are mutual movie fans and podcast fans, but we're actually going to get to know one another over the course of this episode for y'all's listening pleasure. But Stephen, welcome to Wrong Real. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Well, I guess you and I've been talking now. I feel like maybe for like a month or two, and it seems like I don't. I'm yeah. not quite sure when we started interacting. But I'm as a, much of a blank slate on your career as some of the listeners out there. Who is Steven, Stephen Simpson? What do you do, etc. So really, I mean, my podcasting goes back now what seven years, believe it or not. So it's 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 been it just came out of nowhere, and we were doing gaming podcasts with another show and. It came to an end, just the what natural cause of things do. And me and a colleague, Hayden, we decided to where we branched away from that to do, do our own show. And for the love of, of other things, pop culture, where it's rather movies, TV, anything that we like to chat about, we will we just throw into the show now. And uh, once a week, we get up there on a Sunday Sunday evening and rack a, rack a three hour show out most times. It's uh, pretty cool. Now, when it, I mean, I relish every opportunity to talk a little bit of gaming because this is such a film-focused podcast, but I am a, a passionate gamer as well. What are you playing right now that gives you joy? Well, I would say my my um, the only thing I'm playing right now is Destiny 2. Okay. It's it's really a game that I've been playing. I suppose the first the first one was about, I've played about, eight or nine thousand hours of the game it's just That's ridiculous <laughs> I mean, for people out there who aren't gamers usually a game people will probably spend like 50 hours on a playthrough and if they love it they'll keep playing it but yeah 50 hours usually is about like what people where people to kind of tap out on a game yeah I mean, when you're doing your rpg games like skyrim or something like that back in the day or bioshock you know you've got a limit to that and uh you move on but when you've got games that are online, I think they sort of stick. Well, I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast before, but I played World of Warcraft for years, and there's a function in there where you could type slash played and tell you precisely, down to the second, how much time you'd spent on your account across mm. all your characters logged into the game. And when the time tallied up to a year of my life, I was like, you know what? Maybe it's time to move on from World of Warcraft because <laughs> on my deathbed, I probably will want that year back. <laughs> like, do, do, you, great do you think memories. that control will be still in your hands at that moment in time? Oh my! I mean, yeah, it just—it was such a an eye opener, such a revelation. Like I've spent a mm. year. Same. If I'm lucky, if say I have eighty years, like one eightieth of my life running around, um, running around Azeroth, you know, screaming at people and getting in stupid like online battles. And like, <laughs> what? But then again, from your point of view, I mean. Watching, you know, watching movies is. I would not to put a time frame on how many movies you've, you've probably watched over oh, years. Yeah, I'm definitely not typing slash played when it comes to how many <laughs> movies I've watched. That would just be soul crushing. I'm sure. I, I've got so many wonderful movie memories, but especially as a kid, I definitely logged in thousands of hours of watching, let's just say, subpar content that perhaps I could have been uh, doing a little more homework or with having more of an eye toward the future. Well, let's talk a little bit about your own love affair with cinema, when you started getting interested in film. In particular, what was it about music and film that really seized hold of your imagination? Because it seems like with all the things you post online, you just music and cinema has just a stranglehold on your imagination. Oh, God, yes. Um, I mean, as a kid, back in, um, now, obviously, I'm much older than yourself and uh, sort, of, sort of very early 70s. My mum and dad used to take me to the cinema. 
um, seeing, you know, you'd be seeing the staple of like Disney movies and, and stuff like that. That's also the great heyday of some really great British cinema. Oh, absolutely. And at one point, then it, it sort of 1973, I saw, I think, my first Bond movie. Nice. Which would have been Live and Let Die. That's a good one to start with. And I, I sneaked back into the cinema and watched it twice in one day, which things you could do those days. And these days, I think you wouldn't have much of a choice. But um, from there onwards, I just loved it. And science fiction and horror comes to mind. As Even as a child, I would watch the old Hammer movies and the classic B-movies B like This Island Earth and all that sort of staple from, from what you used to get from the States. And at one point, I just started listening to the music. And in the point of fact that... I love movies that much. I like you can't watch them. I mean, today you can actually watch a movie anywhere. It can be on your phone. It can be you can any sort of tablet device. You've got it. But those days, you watched a movie and you walked out, and that was it. Gone. Yeah, you might find like some stills in a book that would help you kind of hang on to the experience. But yeah, movies were at the theater, and watching them on TV was a subpar tiny cropped experience that didn't quite exactly. repl replicate the so I, experience. So I just started getting, my mum and dad asked me what I want one, one Christmas for you, and I said, what do you want? They said, well, can I have the Live and Let Die soundtrack? When you were young and your heart was an open book You used to say Live and Let Live But if this ever changed And um, it just grew from there, really. And every movie I've ever loved, I've near enough bought them, bought the album. Now I love the Paul McCartney and in the Wings uh, track. Are there any other good tunes in the movie? I can't remember, but obviously it's one of the one of the great Bond theme songs. Well, it's funny because George Martin, I think, did the did the score for that one, and the, I mean the the gun barrel sequence for that has got a very sort of classic ring to it compared to someone else we may talk about later. But it it just stuck, and then I was going to the cinema watching the Sean Connery Bond movies because they would do double bills. So probably a rarity for myself as much as others, I got to see Doctor No, Goldfinger, all of those in the cinema. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, you I know. didn't see one in the theater until I saw Octopussy. I saw For Your Eyes Only on HBO, loved it, because just like the, the ski sequence alone made it worthy of like multiple multiple viewings. But then my dad took me to see Octopussy and A View to a Kill. So sadly, I've I seen revivals of like Spy Who Loved Me and things like that, but it's, I've never seen Goldfinger in the theater. I've never seen From Russia With Love in the theater, so I've been deprived of that. Yeah, so and from there onwards, going through the 70s, um, coming to mind is, is Jaws, for example, which I saw in the cinema. And my, my dad took us along to that. I think I must have been, I don't know, about 12 or 13 maybe, maybe a bit older. So done, I mean, the, the way that the cinema works with uh, the ratings those days, I think it was a bit more lax than it is now. So, I mean, I just loved going to the movies. Um, all of John Williams with Spielberg, that just is in, 
embedded in my body. Well, it seems like back in the 70s, but then America and the UK, you had like your movies like Ken Russell's The Devils that were like, don't yes. come in unless you are ready for the rough stuff. And then like everything else kind of got lumped together. I hate having like six different categories. I feel like everything should either be G or X. And yeah, it's like, yeah. pick which one you want to go with. But I hate how in America we have G, PG, PG-13, R, NC-7. It's just completely, utterly ridiculous because it's so contradictory and inconsistent in terms of how the ratings get applied and it gets impacted by the time period in which you find yourself. I, I wish the whole rating system could just go away. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember seeing The Exorcist when I was 15 in the cinema and that did disturb me, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was, I, I, I think I've said this on Twitter before, but I actually did see Reagan sitting on the edge of my bed the day after. Nice. And it freaked the life out of me. You got your money's worth. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And 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 then and then obviously from, from obviously watching the movies, even like The Wicker Man, all some of these old vintage films, I just loved them. Uh, Clint Eastwood comes to mind with Dirty Harry. Hell yeah. I mean, great flicks, but also Clint Eastwood, since he, you're a music guy, he's written a fair number of scores himself. He's a music fanatic. And sung a few as well, isn't he? Believe it or not. I, I kind of prefer it when he doesn't sing, but if he wants to, you know, put some notes on paper and let other people perform them, then I'm all for it. <laughs> well, if you, if you compare that to when he was doing it with um, with Clyde back in the day with um, Any Which Way You Can, I think actually it was a sequel he did it. Yeah, exactly. I, I, mean, I love and adore Clint. He's one of the, the great screen icons. But there's something about his singing voice where he's just, it's not quite there. But I, I respect and admire his uh, his attempt. It, it, it takes a lot of balls to put your singing voice out there like in the opening credits of a movie. Yeah, but then again, if you're going to point a magnum at someone, I think I know which one I prefer, <laughs> to be honest. But it's... I mean, there's so many actors I've been enjoying over the years and going to the cinema. And even when VHS started to come alive, I started buying movies like they were going out of fashion. So you, know you probably I mean? remember the Video Nasties era very clearly. Oh, you would have been about 18 I, or 19 years old when that was really in its yes, day. Because I remember I rented out a spit on your grave and I was watching that one Saturday afternoon at home and my mum walked in. She looked, saw what was on the screen, span 360 and walked straight out of there. She didn't say a dicky bird to me, you know. I thought, okay, yeah, it's a good movie, it's a good movie, mum. You enjoy it, but uh, not a cup of tea. But, yeah, I mean, I saw all of that. They got taken back to the store, then they disappeared for a while. Evil Dead and stuff like that I used to go and see at the cinema. Um, well, why don't we start shifting gears into some of your all-time favorite composers? Because today, I, I love doing these kind of game show formats where we start count, counting down to the uh, the top top of the heap. And so we're going to start yeah. with your top five composers today. We're going to cite a few examples with each composer. And depending upon uh, how things go, who knows? We might have to do a part two because it sounds like you've got about 50 or 60 you would have liked to have included. And that oh, was causing God, you I legitimate mean, physical pain trying has, to narrow your list down. <laughs> I nearly I nearly swapped my number. Well, it's like, there, there's the five to one is just general as it can be where I could change that next week and it'd be something different. Yeah, like depending upon how much coffee you've had or how recently you've watched a movies, your, your mood can change. And, and how much bourbon I've been drinking right now depend, could make a lot of difference. I mean, I, I haven't, as much as um, what I did earlier in the week, I went to the world of Hans Zimmer. And I've never experienced movie scores orchestrally live before. 
And I've got to say, that is something you have to experience to believe. Yeah, the closest I've come to that was uh, I went to a premiere at Comic Con of Star Trek Beyond, and before the movie started, they were playing the, the, they had a live orchestra playing the score for the movie, but they did a like a medley of all the yeah. best Star Trek themes uh, going <laughs> mm-hmm. back to the '60s, and that was insanely cool because you were just hearing the different shows, hearing the different movies, and it was just like a great sentimental journey through 50 years plus of Star Trek history. Oh God, yes, and I forgot how many how many scores Zimmer's done over the years. And even looking at his discography in in the in the program notes, I thought, blimey, he's I can't count on one finger. It's just incredible. But that was just something to behold. Um, and there's someone else I <clears throat> saw last year, which we can talk about later. But do you want me to start with what I've got as number five? Yeah, let's start with you, number five, and we'll work your way down to numero uno. So Bernard Herman. psycho as a kid and that stuck to me it's one movie with one score that um i don't know it it's it sort of it's grown up with me through the years as i saw it early as a kid and well that's 1960 so i was i was i was a twinkle in someone's eye then and uh i just loved it it's just a fantastic score that you know works every time and hitchcock pulls those strings at the right moment to give you the suspense you need regarding, for example, the shower scene. It's, it's iconic. I, I can't it's incredible that for a half century now, strings have become scary and ominous in horror movies because of Bernard Herrmann. That yes. I mean, it's, like, it's, it's so beautiful, but so many horror movies now, when somebody comes into the shower, somebody's stabbing someone with a spear, whatever's happening, it's always, it's not like you whip out the trombone, like trombones are not scary. It's those no. shrieking violins. But to my knowledge, Bernard Herrmann was the first person to really associate that with people being stabbed to death. Hey, you know what? Uh, hold that thought. My, my phone just went off. I just want to put it yeah, on yeah, mute because yeah. I want to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah, sure. No problems. 
phone is off entirely. So, so yeah, the um, I think that's that movie really. The the score actually was what scares you. If you if you took the score away and watched that film on its own, in, you know, just just the um, the actors doing their bit, it it's nowhere near nowhere near as as as, as terrifying as what it was for the time. It would be greatly diminished. And I just love how often those two guys work together. There's a great picture of Bernard Herrmann kind of half asleep with resting his hand on his fist and Hitchcock kind of looming over him, looking down at him in, in disapproval. But they, they work together time and time again. But you look at that guy's career. I mean, he started in radio. He did a ton of stuff with Orson Welles in the late 30s. Yeah. But then you have, like, the, for the bookends of his career... You basically have him starting with Citizen Kane and ending with Taxi Driver. Like just that alone, just the bookends oh. would make him one of the great composers. And but then in the middle, you've got just like dozens of masterworks. Yeah, I mean, where Psycho is concerned, it's funny that actually I don't know of a, a film that's done this in the cinema. But when you went to see it at the time, they would you had to be in before the before it starts because they wouldn't let you in once the credits rolled. I would give my right arm for someone to do that today because in New York, people uh, enjoy being fashionably late to movies and they usually oh, come in with their flashlight on their phone and they're looking for their seats and they're arguing. It's like, everybody take your seat before I start committing some sort of like mass shooting. But <laughs> it would be great as a gimmick. It's sort of, <laughs> oh, why do we have to be there? Like it, precisely when the movie starts that it just, it excites interest and so on. It, I feel like in uh, all these superhero movies, we have these gimmicks of uh, the post credit stinger and the, yeah, the second yeah. one, and people will stick around for that. So audiences are relatively savvy on that front, and if you give them a reason to stick around, they will do so. And I think if you give them a reason to show up early, the, the same well, that's also the way, I mean, obviously you get the trailers nowadays that you want to maybe check out on as well, and sometimes there's a special trailer they might not show anywhere else other than in the cinema. So. Hey. Unfortunately, in America, at least, all the trailers I'm already well familiar with on YouTube long before. And like, I remember when I was a kid going to the movies, the trailers were so damn cool because you never knew what you were going to see. And the first time you saw a trailer for Batman or whatever the case might be, it was such an event like, oh my God, this, this is fucking it. We're going to see it. And now when the trailers play, I'm like, I've seen this trailer 50 times. Please, let's just get to the, uh, to the main event. So that's been kind of spoiled for me. Yes, yes. I, 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 I think there should be more of a, a, a law and clause for the cinema. And I think the government should bring that in, let alone Brexit. But they... <laughs> Well, I'm looking uh, at Bernard Herrmann right now. So we've got like North by Northwest in here. We've got Vertigo in here. They're just, there's so many good ones. Apart from Psycho, what are your, your favorite Bernard Herrmann scores? Well, the other one that really holds um, a place in my heart is if I give if I say to you the the word theremin, does that ring any bells? If I hear theremin, well, I've seen a, a theremin used in a live performance of Metropolis, where they had a theremin being played alongside an electric organ, and it was so cool having them play together. But when I can't recall a Bernard Herrmann score that uses the theremin, Re- I should I should be slapping you around the face right now for that one. Day the Earth stood still. Oh, beautiful, excellent, nice.
Now, for people out there who are unfamiliar with the theremin, explain what how this instrument is played because it's quite unusual. Yes, yeah, so there's I think it's two aerials, one horizontal, one vertical, and with the electricity passing through, and with that, um, with the mag, I think it's the, is it the magnetic field. It is you place your hands in that area to create the sound, and I watched a woman playing the day the earth stood still on YouTube. She has got patience. I cannot believe how, how, how that takes to hold your hands in a certain position and actually flow them around. It's got to be an art. Yeah, and it just it makes creates such an unusual effect. But when I got to see Metro, was, this is at the silent movie theater in Los Angeles, which has since closed, and they just had somebody with just his like you know his electronic keyboard right then and there. And I yeah. don't even know if he had maybe he had speakers. I can't really remember. But they had the theremin for certain sequences, like when the um, the robot is getting the skin first put on and things like that. And it was just a, a such a great little extra touch. But yes, it, nothing screams fifties more than the theremin. And I think I think to be honest as well, that's to me that that is sci-fi. That is science fiction at, at its finest. And for the fifties, with all those movies that came out, it just sticks out top of the tree for me. And I was really pleased to pick up the LP recently as a picture disc, and just playing that on my on my system here at home. Oh now, boy! It's... Now, what is your LP collection uh, looking like these days? Because I see you post a lot of stuff, including your LPs. Is it like a comic book collection at this point where it's just thousands upon thousands of records kind of lining the walls? Or what, what, is, what, is your, what does your home look like? I would love to. At the moment, I've got them in um, in like these Ikea units. And I'm running out of space at the moment because I've only got a small room that I use for myself. So I need to move some Lego I've got on the one in the units. I've got some Star Wars Lego sitting there, which I might have to take down and place the vinyl in its place. Now, how long will a record last before? I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit, I don't even know how to play a record. I, like, I've never actually placed a record in a record player. And, really? And so I, I was, I'm from the cassette era moving forward. But every time I'm aware of the fact that every time you play a record, obviously you wear it down just a little bit. So do you ever worry about playing your treasured LPs worrying that you're going to basically like um, decrease their shelf life? Um, not really. I mean, I, I, I do go between from one to the other. I do, I do, I do have favorites of course. And some of those I've still got the original pressing. So let's say something from 1972, let's say, um, let's say living at die, for example. Now that is going to be, I, I can't even want to calculate how old that album is now, but it plays as well. There's a little bit of crackle in it, but that just gives a bit of life to the, to the album personally. And today's vinyl now is 180 gram. So it's much thicker as well. So that's giving you more bass and there's more depth in it as well. So I think they probably last a bit longer at that weight as well. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I just, just um, whenever I see like documentaries about like scratching culture, and I see people raiding the back bins and looking for you know rare obscure records and that sort of thing, I always get kind of jealous <coughs> that it's some sort of fetish or obsession that I've never been able to fully understand or explore. My dad had this epic record record collection that I remember just being so bewildered by as a kid, just seeing like how can I play these great Beatles albums that he collected uh, back <laughs> in the sixties. But yeah, I was just I was a tape guy and a CD guy, and sadly I just missed the whole record revolution. Well, it's it, you could if you ever fancy trying to ever invest and having a look at it now, it's back in a big way. So, you know that actually would be kind of cool. Just I moved into a new place about a year ago, mm -hmm. and just having a record player here and have some nice speakers, it would just give it a little a, a touch of class when I invite people over for for cocktails. I mean, yeah, it does. And I've got a I've got an album coming over from the states at the moment. So I've got I've had I've, I've had one just come recently, but I've got another one coming from New Orleans. 
from a company called Waxworks. And I've got the score to Reanimator. Oh, beautiful. Nice. And saying that linked, I mean, is there copyright for Psycho in that? Do you know what I mean? Because there's very, very much a hint of, of the Psycho main theme in that in that title track. If you if you haven't heard it for a while and replay it, you will it will jump out at you, you know. Yeah, I think I listen. I remember we did a, an episode about Reanimator and a couple other films uh, by Stuart Gordon like a year, year and a half ago. And I remember this coming up, but I totally forgotten about that until you just mentioned it. But I would have to revisit it. To, like when I think of Reanimator, I just think of these gruesome, Grotesque. lurid <laughs> images. So I would have to revisit before I could recall the score. But it is just such a funny fucking movie. It was like, get a job in a sideshow. Just, it's, <laughs> it's so fucking amazing. I love that movie. Oh, I, I've, I've recently just watched it again on YouTube because you can find the, find the uncut version on YouTube. So it's well worth a shot. Yeah, absolutely. Barbara Crampton, smoking hot. And she's very nice to people on Twitter. If you, if you reach out to Barbara Crampton, she, she will respond. But let's move on to number four. What do you got for us? So, Ennio Morricone. Beautiful. So, I've got a couple there. From one, one end of the spectrum to the other. So, the first one, I actually re-watched this recently. Um, I was trying to work out what version I've got and what versions there are. Because The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly can be a long movie. Even the, even the short version of it is a long movie, but there's an extended cut. I actually prefer the shorter version, but the, yeah. the extended version seems to be the more popular version these days. Oh God, yeah, and I mean, I think I looked on our local um, local Sky where we you know, we got the, the you know for watching TV and stuff. I mean, that's two hours fifty minutes, I think. Yeah, the extended version. cut has an additional scene where you see Tuco gathering up his buddies before he goes in search of Blondie, and then it's got a, uh, an additional scene with um, Angel Eyes talking to Union soldiers. But they don't necessarily contribute that much. And maybe it's just because I saw the Good, the Bad, the Ugly, the theatrical cut, like a, a ton before I ever yeah. saw the extended cut. So I just, <clears throat> but I, everything I want from the experience is in the theatrical cut, which is why I always lean toward it. Yeah, because I, I funny enough, last night I did have a look on there, and I just I dug out the DVD I've got and watched the the extended cut of the of the uh, the, the bit where he's being tortured, and for some reason they said they couldn't put it in there because of the the film was so poorly in a degenerative state that they only could have what they could have originally, but. Uh, that was interesting to have a look at, I must admit. Gotcha. Yeah, even with the, when I've watched like the fully restored version of the film on DVD, the scenes that have been put back in, you can definitely tell uh, dramatic like diminishment in overall visual quality. Obviously, the original source material must have been like in a horribly deteriorated f- form when they put it back in. So once again, I- I'm perfectly happy just to watch the theatrical cut. But it's a weird thing now with streaming, where so rarely do they actually make the theatrical cuts available. They seem to always defer to the extended versions, which is isn't necessarily always the best version, but obviously if you collect Blu-rays and DVDs, they tend to make every version available right then and there in the collection. Now with the score of that flick, obviously everyone always thinks about the giant operatic finale, which might be the most operatic scene in all of Westerns, but are there any other themes or bits of music scattered throughout the film that really jump out at you? Because it has a few really haunting melodies that people might not necessarily think of immediately when they think of that movie. Yeah. 
found out and i didn't know this but what he did was he was able to give certain instruments to the to the different to the different um actors so for clint eastwood for example he had um what do we have here i think they used an, an orcana which is i'm not sure what that is i think it's like a wind a little wind uh percussion instrument or something i don't know how that works is that and what they used to play the iconic Yes, I think it was. And there's the flute for there's the so yeah, sorry I get it wrong. There's the flute for Blondie, which would be Clint Eastwood. There's he has um the Oricano for Angel Eyes. And there's the third one as well. Yeah, there's that I think, evil like guitar music as well that you always associate yeah, with Angel Eyes when you walk into a scene. That's it, and there's I think he had it's also I'm reading some notes said that he had some human voices for Tuco as well. So I think the way Eric Oney was, was was blending all those in together, it just works so well. You could you can think about obviously the, the the main theme, which is I think so iconic on its own, and probably regarded as one of the one of the best soundtracks ever produced. Um, and then you've got these you've got these different uh, melodies, like when when he's when you got that torture scene and you got the guys outside. Exactly, I love that the diegetic diegetic score was actually in the context of the scene where they're making everybody sing and play against their will. The rebel soldiers who are prisoners yeah. because they're trying to disguise the noise of the torture and they will have to continue to sing and play as long as they continue to beat and torture uh, Tuca within an inch of his life. And finally, when, once they start shoving their thumbs in his eyes, he's like, I'll talk, I'll talk. And they, they, the song comes to an end. And then, and then obviously at the end there, you've got, you've got the classic scene with the pocket watch, which yeah. that to me is, I think it's, that is more memorable to me, I think, to be honest, because it's... Are we talking about the pocket watch scene from For a Few Dollars More? Or? Yes, so yeah. I'm getting confused. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, yeah that, that scene, I mean, it's, it's one of the best scenes that Sergio Leone ever shot. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, I just love it, because I remember watching these movies while I was working away from home so i was watching them on tv and they were doing a little run of them and i stayed in most nights and just sat and watched them after after work while i was instead of uh, going down the pub at this as what we would have called it then but yeah great absolutely great movie now in macrone i think he's got over 500 uh compositions to his name as i mean he's still active you know at the age of 150 today but, because he's on tour, isn't he? At the moment, he's doing a he's doing this long last. Oh, one I don't know about tour. that. I, I haven't I haven't been paying attention. I guess the last bit of news I saw surrounding him was when he did the uh, the Hate Late score a couple of years ago. But in that, he's worked with Brian De Palma and Sergio Gorbucci and Dario Argento and all these extraordinary filmmakers. Do you have any second, third, fourth, well, fifth there's, place favorites? There's, there's two in there actually. I, I've got one written. I've got one written down here, but I've also want to talk about another one because I love. The Untouchables. Astonishingly and cool flick. Absolutely. And how everything works well together. The the soundtrack in this case is that era. And even the, the theme for Capone. Oh, 
I just love that to bits. It's it's just so fluent in how it goes with him. It's uh, brilliant. Especially that lengthy sequence. I guess maybe you're following a waiter up to this giant meeting room, or maybe he's followed the waiter going, going yeah. up to when he's being shaved. I can't remember which one it is, but you you hear the Capone theme song as this guy's going up to him and then when you see him being shaved of course the barber gets scared at one point accidentally cuts him because i think denier like moves to look at somebody and yeah. the barber is justifiably terrified and denier's like it's all right it's all right but you're like oh my god this guy's a few seconds away from getting his own throat cut lucky the baseball bat wasn't around for that one i must admit absolutely yeah what what are the things that give me joy Baseball, oh, yeah, it's one of those De Palma movies that sometimes people don't really give a shout out to. I Everyone mean, likes to talk about Carlita's Way and Scarface mm. and Carrie and a lot of the obvious ones, but I've watched The Untouchables many times with my brothers. And I, remember I showed this to my little brother when he was like ten or so. And one of the things that made me smile about it was when I heard a few weeks later that he was in turn showing it to his friends. And this is decades after the movie came out, so the yeah. fact that it could still play. To someone who doesn't care about film history, who doesn't care about Brian De Palma, doesn't care about Ennio Morricone, just enjoying it as a story so much that he wants to share it with his other buddies, that illustrated to me just how much power it just has as a as a as a movie going experience, irrespective of all the other kind of cinephile uh, concerns that we might have. Oh God, yeah, and I, I, it's, it's a shame now that really Sean Connery sort of maybe retired these days, but. The, the, the scene in the church when he's trying to talk about how to get Capone ah, just makes me smile, that does. Yeah, that's the and Chicago it, way. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Uh, it's just, it's such a great movie. And I, I, I would love to, I mean, I did see that in the cinema when it was released at the time. And I don't actually own it on Blu-ray. I, I think I needed to pick a copy up at some point. But I, I know it so well. It, it, I think I can play the score and, and watch the movie in my head. I think that's something else I could do. What about when they're on horseback riding to do this bust and it's like most oh. of the music's pretty menacing throughout, but suddenly it's like, what are we, are we watching like the Lord of the Rings or like a rollicking Western? Easy. Now the Canadians will not show until I flash the badge. So it's imperative that we cross the ground between us and the bridge as quickly as possible. George, it looks okay. The count's right. I'm not concerned about the count. I'm concerned about the size of these barrels. You won't. You and I will take the map. Stop the leech! Move it! Move it, Georgie! Come on! What the hell? You're gonna die of something.
it's so stirring and it's so passionate and it just it makes you want to like run through brick walls like fuck yes like it's so <laughs> overwhelmingly cool when they're riding oh, into battle it's because it's like it's like a big concerto going on at that point yeah and you know obviously it's very menacing at the point where they've got the guy sean connery's got that guy up against the the, the dead guy up with a gun to his mouth trying to tell someone else to think he's actually getting what he wants out of him and the other guy's crapping himself on the floor like, what do you want to know what do you want to know it's almost like an edward g robinson like impersonation from like way back when oh yeah it is isn't it that really i was playing that track um that album so the album the other day actually um, when i was putting some lists together and i took it out but the only reason i took it out is because i wanted to put something else in there and this one for me this movie's a timeless classic that hasn't aged it got terrible reviews on my um, when it came out. I remember it, I say it was doing the rounds for promotion on my birthday back in 1982. And this is the thing. John Carpenter's movie and giving Erin Americone to do the score because he was too busy. Um, that's pure genius, to be honest. Yeah, it's like a pulse. I mean, Carpenter's so famous, justifiably famous for his own unique contributions to cin- music and cinema. But that Ennio Morricone music is so simple and so stripped away, but it instantly is recognizable. It's, it's, I mean, who knows? At this point, because that movie, I feel like it gets a little bigger every year in people's estimation. Is mm. that theme at this point more recognizable and more famous than the Jaws theme? Because like Jaws, obviously, is iconic and people love it. But when <clears> you hear the, the thing music, you're like, oh, my God, we're about to go to a very – dark disturbing terrible place <laughs> a very cold place as well yeah. that. i mean apparently uh, the co-producer stuart cohen originally offered it to jerry goldsmith i mean he probably would have done a, a good job but I mean, he was from, too busy with he was too busy with uh poltergeist at the time for spielberg yeah no, i mean yet another classic iconic score but there's something about that ennio morricone score and i know that some excerpts from it that weren't you didn't make the final cut of the film mm. popped up in hateful eight you know like 30 years later yeah, I mean, I mean, how bizarre is that when you you see these movies and the, this leftover bit of um, film on the floor, and they'll throw it in somewhere else. The same way I think that The Shining is sitting in um, Blade Runner. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's like the uh, the movies are mating in some way. Oh God, yeah, it's just classic. But as I say, this score is so it's such a cold, cold movie, and it it's so spooky. It it, it just and it holds that tension throughout the film. The tempo of the score doesn't change. It will, it will, it will probably pace up a bit for a certain scene or not, but it just flows steadily all the way through the film right to the end when you're still questioning how that's going to finish. Yeah, and with John Carpenter, oftentimes, I mean, the way he studied films at USC, he learned the old-fashioned way. They said, look, learn how to do every job on the set because as a low-budget filmmaker getting started, you might not be able to pay a sound mixer. You might not be able to pay a composer. You might not be able to pay a cinematographer. So if you can juggle a lot of balls and wear a lot of hats, then you'll be off to the races. And so writing scores for his movies was almost kind of an afterthought that he would do last minute. But once he actually had the means with which to hire composers, I love the fact he's like, fuck writing my scores. Let's get Eddie Morricone, like the greatest composer who ever lived. Well, um, apparently he phoned him up. And I think what swayed it was that he said, I had your, your music at my wedding. So I would, God knows how that went down. Was that the he wedding must, to Adrian Barbeau? I, I would imagine so, yeah. 
but you know what score he was used at the wedding, I don't know. But that's what I, I seem to have read about. Yeah, he's so, much flying uh, close to the sun at that point. John Carpenter, his movies were so good, and he's marrying this outrageously just sizzling sexy woman and you're working with any Morricone I mean life was good for John Carpenter circa 1982 oh god yeah 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 but we'll get onto that later shall we say anyway I don't want to dive deep in that oh, right okay now. got you uh, that's, uh, that's a deep tease <laughs> for later all right so number three oh, god, what do you got for oh, us oh god yeah so I've decided to go British for this bring it and John Barry beautiful fucking love John Barry he his his style of music, I think, never changes. Whether you're watching the Crest file, or in this case, he's done a big handful of Bond movies. This never happened to the other fella. I mean, there's obviously a great source of debate always surrounding the best Bond themes, but it's a weird thing where the more time goes by, the more I see people talking about that John Barry theme for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and it's like you see it being used in like hip hop tracks and things like that. You just it, it's the song that will not go away, it will not die, and that movie was such a an embarrassment when it first came out and people just rejected it outright. But that score has somehow made it like, it's like now like the cool hipster dark horse candidate for one of the coolest Bond movies. Oh God. Yeah. And actually I do have the album now. I can't find it if I turn my head, but um, <clears throat> the propeller heads did a, did a track for from that. And I don't know if you've ever, ever caught that, but that's awesome. They did, they did a re a retake on the space shuttle um, part of the score and the main theme as well and it's, it's it's superb but going back further i think even though dr no was more of a, a not maybe a sort of jazz jamaican album compared to how he moves forward from there because from russia World, and then when it moved into goldfinger which that album i do have and that's the score there that's bond it's you, you play those lines, you hear the gun barrel sequence. That is John Barry. That is Bond. That's all you need to know. And that's held up through all his movies that he's been involved in. Yeah, it, it took him a, a few movies to lock down the formula. Like you can see it, like the beginning with Dr. No, but so much about Dr. No, like from the like the, the title sequence, like everything, we're like, whoa, this is so strange. Like it, all the classic the, kind of signature details, are they're still working on them, trying to lock them down. Yeah, and because you've got all those... You got all those dots on the screen at the time as well, and it's like some sort of light show going yeah, on. Like, what, what the fuck 
is this? And then when from Rush for Love, like, all right, this is looking and feeling like the real deal Bond. And my Goldfinger, the formula is like locked in amber for all time. Like, all right, now we've got it. We know what he looks like. We know what he talks like. We know what the movies sound like. We know what they feel like. Like everything, the everything's flowing. Everything's like it's everything's crystallizing perfectly. And then of course they just sustained it with Thunderball. And uh, um, uh, you, you only live you twice. You only live twice. That's yeah. right. And where he could give you that feel of you being in Japan. And even like the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sequence, um, there's a theme he used in five movies. And that was called the 007 theme. Not getting confused with the James Bond theme, of course, which was by Monty Norman. So is the 007 theme like that lengthy battle sequence music you hear in Thunderball when they're having like the battle and like when they're in the scuba gear? It's like bum 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 bum. Yes, it yeah yeah it goes on and on and boom boom boom. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's good stuff. So that was used. That was used in was it from Rush with Love, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, Times Are Forever, and then the slowest version was in Moonraker. When they had a boat sequence during now, the film. How many Bond movies did John Barry work on? He's worked on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I've got written down here. God damn! So did he stop with Living Daylights? What was his last? He did. Yeah, that's right. You got it. Bang on there. I uh, I saw that one in the theater. I, you know, Living Daylights is such an underrated Bond in so many ways because every like with the Honor Majesty Secret Service, people love to shit on George Lazenby, and some people like to shit on Timothy Dalton. But if you watch t- uh, Living Daylights now, once you've mm. kind of gotten over the fact that because Roger Moore had been do- playing the part for seven movies, people were very used to Roger Moore, so uh, people always resist change initially, and then like years later, like oh, but I kind of liked it back then, blah blah blah. But well, I revisited Living Daylights a couple years ago. And if you like those John Glenn Bond movies from the early 80s, Living Daylights is very mm. much done in the same style. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even go, if you go back to Unmatched Secret Service, where, as you say, there's a bit of a short deal with that. Obviously, Connery came out. George Lazby came in. It was one-shot wonder. Not a lot of people were happy with it for whatever reason. But it's a good film. The sequences in 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 Switzerland are amazing. The cinematography Dude, on that—it's got is... some funny shit in there as well. Like at one point they're having this big dinner session, di- dinner scene, and George Lazenby's in disguise, and a girl writes her room number on his thigh with like lipstick, and someone sees him react and like, oh, do, is there something wrong? And he's like, just a sudden stiffness coming on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <That> always <laughs> makes me just howl. Oh, oh god, yeah, it does, and uh, it's. I think people that may have not seen it, they should check it out. It, it, oh, it's, without it's a doubt. A it, if, if you can, but now we've had so many people play Bond, I think people are, are less attached to individual actors. Once upon a time, I was like, I'm a Sean Connery guy, or I'm a Roger Moore guy, and people would be like very territorial about which Bond movies they, they preferred, but I just want to see a great Bond movie, and I don't care if it's Daniel Craig or Pierce Brosnan or whomever, just give me a good Bond. Do you, do you think, though, because we have this debate all the time, that I'm sick of hearing about, how Bond's gone downhill. It has gone downhill a bit, I must admit. Well, it depends, because Bond is uh, it's a roller coaster of ups and downs, and at any point in the, the... I mean, they made, what, 24 of them so far, and there's a 25th on the mm. way. There's some turkeys here and there. Like, I mean, I love The Man with the Golden Gun, but it's a pretty, like, inconsistent movie-going experience. Like, Moonraker, you've got great characters like Dr. Goodhead, but then you got some really ridiculous stuff in there as well. So I think sometimes people look back on the old bonds and assume they're all equally good and they're not and with no. pe- with daniel craig casino royale is a fucking awesome movie i love oh, casino royale it did re- revitalize bond and i mean dying of the day was shit 
And then Casino Royale like brought it back from the ashes like a phoenix. I mean, Dire another day, you have like invisible cars and all this silliness. That's just and, total nonsense. Yeah, like people transforming from Korean to white. Like you're like, what the fuck am I watching? And then you, all of a sudden Casino Royale came along and was back to basics. It was largely yeah. inspired by the novel and it was the first Bond novel. And you get, I mean, just seeing Bond play cards and just being cool, that's really all you need. And it, re- it rediscovered and kind of re-solidified the essence of what James Bond is all about. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I'm hoping that they get it right this time, because the last one, it wasn't the greatest of film. But, uh, yeah, I, I sometimes harp back to some of the other ones, well, especially on Magic Secret Service, because that's the only one where you see he got, he got married and you know the reasons why he's like he is. And he visited why the grave he... and uh, for your eyes only. It's... That's right. He's he, he's a womanizer because he was he was cut short the love of his life. And um I could, I could see the point of view from that. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope Kerry Fukunaga does a good job. Kerry Fukunaga, obviously, first season of True Detective was brilliant. And then he's done some other things that are less... I, mean, I enjoyed Beasts of No Nation. Yeah. But I hated Manic. I mean, I, was, I thought I lasted like two episodes, and, or Maniac, whatever the fuck it was called. It was a remake of like a European crazy person show. He did it on Netflix. I thought it was awful, and I bailed mm. out very early on. Kerry <laughs> Fukunaga is enormously bright and i saw him do a q a with idris elba after a screening of boost beast and no nation at telluride he's a very interesting guy and he plays a lot of polo like he gets i feel like to do bond you have to know a little bit of that uh, some of that upper crust pastimes whether it's like big stakes gambling or polo or skiing just there's a certain world that the character of bond explores and if you have some inside knowledge of how those people operate i think it helps inform the, the story uh, yeah. in, in an interesting way. So I hope Kerry Fukunaga will bring some of that to the table. But I don't think Fer- Kerry Fukunaga is from the UK originally. So is this the first Bond not directed by a Brit? Could possibly well be, I think. Because I think every I've Bond ju- has been directed by a Brit since day one. Yeah, I, I think I'll say, I'll say John Glenn always comes to mind straight away. But um, I don't think, yeah, I mean, that's not that's never going to be a problem. Because I, I, I think Edgar Wright to do one. I think that would be cool. Matthew Vaughn's obviously got his own Bond franchise now with Kingsman, but it'd be cool to see what Matthew Vaughn would do. I mean, Britain's got so many great, uh, really talented filmmakers right now. I just feel like you don't need to dig up the, the Yankees to... Uh, so you wouldn't think, you, you wouldn't want to see Sam Mendes go back in there then? I mean, I, I like Skyfall quite a bit. I, I think I saw Skyfall three times in the theater. Like, and even my yeah. little sister, who had been like seven or eight at the time, and she fucking hates movies. Like, she'd rather do anything. Like, she'd rather do homework than watch a movie. <laughs> but even she texted me after seeing Skyfall. I was like, oh, my God, it was so good. I think mostly she just loved the Adele song. But the fact mm. that like a little girl who doesn't like movies thought Skyfall's the shit, it just should have had this crossover appeal that a lot of Bond movies don't have. Well, I tell you something that was pretty cool. Um I mean, my, my job is um, CCTV and access control. And one of our jobs we had, we used to look after this airport in the UK. And we were there doing our servicing work as we normally do. And there was a load of foreign cars turned up with weird number plates. And well, what's this then? But they're shooting a new Bond movie. So we thought, OK, there was there was a lot of um, big lights up with reflectors and plates and stuff to whatever the scenes we're doing. So the next day we go back in there, we're servicing the, the DVRs for the recorders. We go back and we start watching the, where they were shooting Daniel Craig in, an, in the airport scene from Casino Royale. Nice. And just just amazed at my word, you know, this is what happened last night because they have to do it at night time. But yeah, absolutely crazy. And I've actually, I've actually touched the Hello Turf. Now, in Goldfinger, you remember... 
the the car chase scene where he the the guy goes out of the uh, the roof of the, the DP7. <laughs> yeah, the 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 not very convincing dummy that they eject from <laughs> the roof of the Aston Martin. So, so, he's always bowed to the left of it, and he shoots out. So they're aiming him out. Yeah. Well, that was filmed on that was filmed on 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 uh, on Pinewood itself. Okay. And where then what the scene obviously continues where he sees the car lights heading towards him, which is that big mirror, which then he takes twists and he crashes into the side of the wall. Well, that that was filmed in, in Pinewood and that's now called Goldfinger Avenue. Beautiful. And Pinewood have got the the, the, the place where they do the, the post production for the movies. They now have that out to the public to watch movies. So you can go to Pinewood and see whatever they're going to be showing. They don't do it all the time. It's pretty, I think, depends what's going on. But I went to see Rogue One at Pinewood Studios. And Mrs. wondered why I dragged her all this way. I said, look, it's Star Wars. They filmed it here. We're going to watch the film in the cinema on the Pinewood set, you know? And it, that, to me, meant that was worth its weight in gold just to go there. But it's just... Just a fantastic place of movies over and the does years. Does Shepperton have a similar thing set up? Is Shepperton still alive and well? Yeah, there's Shepperton. I think it's still going. I'm not 100 percent sure because it's a bit. It's un. It's sort of underlooked at compared to to Pinewood. Okay. But um, but yeah, no. It, I think they're just they've got such a long history with movies. The over only the studio years. I've visited in the UK is uh, when I was in London in 2000. 13, I think. My little brother and sister were big Harry Potter fans, so we took the bus out, or maybe we took the train Wait, out. To li- that to Leavesden, was it? Oh, I'm sorry? Was it to Leavesden, yeah? I, I guess, I can't remember where, where we, we, I remember I had to look it up, and we took the train out, and then from there we caught a bus, and we went to the studio where they shot a lot of the Harry Potter films, and of course my little sister, same one who liked Skyfall, she thought we were actually going to a set that would resemble Hogwarts, so we yeah. pull up, and it's just these giant sound stages like like any studio she's like what yeah. is this i was like these are movie studios she's like but where's like the castle like where, where's the forest <laughs> and so we went inside then we see this giant scale model that was used for hogwarts and that sort of thing and then she started getting to the swing of things because all the wardrobe is on display and you could drink butterbeer and so she started getting to play with the props blah 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 so that's the only exposure i've had to any sort of like british film so, 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 has, she, so has she been to universal i mean when i when i went to universal studios uh, 10 years ago um, Harry Potter world was just being built, and obviously that's a big thing now over there. Yeah, I've done Universal, but my little sister she has never been to uh, California at all. I don't, or at least maybe actually no, she went out there when she was like six, I think, for to, for a brief. Yeah. but I don't know if she did the tour. I did the tour in the early '90s, and it was it was pretty cool. I, I did the backdraft the backdraft experience where like the room would shake and fireballs go up on your face, and yeah, it was, oh, was that, good. Fun. Oh, god, yeah, because I, I saw that I went to I went to the Florida. Oh, Florida gotcha. Site. Okay. And uh, yeah, and you had you had the train set. You, had the, you were on this train that was going to sort of stop, and the flames are coming out, and everything else. And um, oh, fantastic! You know. All right. Well, I got an important question for you, John Barry. Obviously, will always be forever associated with Bond, and justifiably so. However, what is your mm. favorite John Barry score not associated with Jimmy Bond? There's one, actually. Yes, I I would have probably put this in there as well, and. Dances with Wolves comes to mind. Interesting. All right. Very cool. Lay it I haven't watched Dances with Wolves in quite quite some time. So what what is it that's so distinctive about that score? Well, I, I think what what's what comes to mind all the time is the theme they use for the John Barr theme, the Dunbar theme for him, and it so sounds like he's he's out there on a horseback, just just riding through the the, the glades there, and it just it just it just follows it sweetly. I mean. I was listening to Barry the other day, just going through some some stuff, thinking about this for today, and 
I come across, I was listening to Born Free as well. And even that actually, that's a classic score. I know maybe it's not a film that a lot of people have seen, but uh, it's 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 one there for the top of the list. Well, he's got so many great ones. Like I'm looking at his list right now. We got Walkabout, got The Lion and Winter. I mean, there's a lot of really massive <coughs> fucking flicks in here in his filmography. And the, I say the Ipcrest file was a great track as Which well. Which I have never seen. Oh, Day of the Locust in here. See, Robin and Marion. Holy shit! And the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong remake. <laughs> yeah. That's it. <laughs> So he's, he's, I mean, bless him, he's not with us anymore, unfortunately. But yeah, he has done some class scores over the years. Yeah, no, he definitely, he definitely made his mark without question. And I think, I think because I remember my dad buying this um, John Barry album when I was a kid. This is what probably got me into this, but this as well, it's probably sort of swayed it a bit. And on there, you had Born Free. Um, they had the James Bond. Had, I think you had um, the Space March from Unlive Twice and Goldfinger was on there. But a film you haven't mentioned, which for me is up there as well, and that is Midnight Cowboy. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's one of, I mean, masterpiece. And and the, 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 the main theme for that with the harmonica is, oh, that just sends chills, that does. Yeah, I, I love and adore Midnight Cowboy. That's one of the movies I saw when I was like 19, when I was first getting into old movies, and it had a massive impact on me. And I'd never seen a movie quite like it. And obviously directed by a Brit, John Schlesinger. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it's one of the quintessential American movies, but it's not made by an American. Sometimes an outsider looking in can give you the most interesting perspective. I think it probably puts a spin in it nicely, to be honest, as well. Absolutely. But yeah, it's, it is. It's great. I mean, there's, there's films from that era like that. Even like, um, say, Papillon comes to mind as well, and even though it's not a Barry score, but those sort of films there, they just hold out still. And yeah, in the early seventies, you can't beat it. I mean, my favorite year of filmmaking is nineteen seventy one. But something about there's something in the water in the early seventies in both the UK and in America where the budgets weren't necessarily that big, but the artistry and the the the, the ability and the willingness to tackle really complicated, challenging, oftentimes just terrifying, controversial material. We've not really seen that era of return. I guess some of the independent films in the 90s dabbled in the, uh, but I, think, I, I don't know if we'll ever see an era quite like the early 70s ever again, where just movies suddenly feel really dangerous and alive. And I think obviously, because they, they were very controversial as well. Um, Death Wish comes to mind. Yeah, well, um, yeah. Oh. <laughs> without a doubt, that's a, that's oh. a movie that some people now like. Where's the trigger trigger warning? It's like you don't get a trigger warning with Charles Bronson. He's just he's in your face. <laughs> I say, well, you're not gonna. Know, it's the, tri- the the trigger to duck and hide is when you see Jeff Goldblum running around with a gang. Absolutely. You know, it's just yeah, brilliant dynamite brilliant. flick. All right, well, we're getting down to the nitty gritty. Number two, who is uh, who who is on your list? I've got Jerry Goldsmith. All right, beautiful, excellent. All right, so for people out there who are unfamiliar with Jerry Goldsmith, uh, he's, I mean, he's le- legend, but get, kind of set the stage for who this guy is. So for me, this started a long time ago, back in 1968. I would have been, what, I think it was four then? Blimey, but I, I probably didn't see the films to the early 70s, but his scores are all very orchestral. They don't, they, he has like 100-piece orchestras. And I think if if you were to be so bold to say that he can be God in this industry for this. Um, and then when Planet of the Apes came out, oh, my God.
the the way that score works, the instruments used to 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 bring it to life, because you're 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 seeing something there that you've never seen before. You're seeing you're seeing these apes riding horses, which is still one of the coolest, weirdest images in film history. <laughs> it, it, it is, and and you hear the horns as they come up, and you see them for the first time out of the the cornfields. It's so jarring because it, it it your brain screams out in protest. Something's dreadfully wrong. <laughs> it is, and you can imagine what the the, the um, Charlton Heston is going. What the fuck's going on here? What we what we let ourselves in for here? And as I say, you've done a one hell of a podcast on this some time ago, and it's it's such a such an amazing score. It's so different. I don't think there's ever a score like it anymore. With the atmospheric, is instrument. he the best composer for sci-fi and movie history? Because I feel like he's got a lot of legendary scores to his name. He's probably up there. I mean, if I I could read you a list. Okay, so what we've got. We've got stainless steel kitchen mixing bowls. We've got a uh, bass side whistle, which is a wind instrument with a tube piston at the bottom for the right pitch. You've got a Brazilian um, kirka, which is simulating the ape sounds. We've got a shofar, which is a ram's horn traditionally used in a Jewish religion ceremony. Uh, we've got a, sh- we've got a, a boobams, which is hollow bamboo stems to sound like the tune of congas. We've got electric harps, electric bass clarinets, bells, water drop bars, Tiberian horns, gongs, slit drums or log drums, and a conch, conch shell. I mean, who in the hell would have that in that orchestra? Yeah, and having those different textures just creates such an otherworldly atmosphere. I, mean, I grew up playing uh, alto saxophone, but you know, our band was, we kind of had your, your traditional setup where you had your clarinets and your alto sax, your tenors, your trumpets, your trombones, the drums, and that was about it. But man, if you're, if you're a great composer, you want to experiment with every texture known to man. And it, it is because, because the way that film starts with, with the sort of like the, I say a guitar sound as such, and it just brings into these like, I think if it's like symbols and the the imaginative sounds that just bowls into it as 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 you come in as you land and they crash on <clears throat> on this planet and it, it's it's a, it's a terrifying thought and it's just the imagination he's put into this score is just it's so bold it but really it doesn't is. stop here because when it comes to science fiction i mean you've got a little movie that people might have heard of called alien and you've got star trek the motion picture which for me has the best star trek theme of them all i know some people who really love the original series might we'll get onto we'll get onto that in a minute actually funny yeah. enough but and you say but, a- but even his non-sci-fi i mean he does like stuff with paul verhoeven and people like basic instinct i mean he his versatility is extraordinary and Basic Instinct, oh, that's a, that's a lovely score. Actually, that's a joy to listen to. All that, that soft, smoothing um, sounds that you get through that start of the sounds film. Sounds like sex. <laughs> yeah, and all the way, all the way you get that. Uh, um, he, I don't know, I mean, he, he did Poltergeist, if memory's correct as well. Yeah, Logan's Run. I mean, like the, the, the sci-fi scores, the I mean, Secret of Nim. I'm, I'm a, oh, First Blood. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah, Poltergeist. I mean, the, the, this is, it's an embarrassingly rich treasure trove of iconic scores that are below. I think, yeah. for, but for whatever reason, outside of movie buffs, he doesn't necessarily seem to have that brand name recognition that some says john williams is like oh and they can like even if they don't care about movies they can they can name a few john williams scores mm. and for some but i feel like goldsmith should be if anything perhaps a little higher up i feel like williams has like three or four scores that people really deeply love from the late 70s early 80s but goldsmith yeah. seems to have had the, the longer career where he's creating iconic work across several decades yes and and you mentioned that um 
Logan's Run. Yeah. And what a score. I mean, the, the, the instruments and the electronic sounds that start off in the beginning of the movie, when you first see this, this dome and you can see the, 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 the tram or the rail that's going around and everything, and you've got all this electronic score pulsing away, which eventually that will disappear into this orchestral piece. And it's 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 it's, it's mind blowing, actually mind blowing. Yeah, and going back to the idea of versatility, I mean, it's only like a year prior he's doing the score for Chinatown. I mean, you want to talk about movies that are worlds apart in approach, style, atmosphere, flavor, whatever you <coughs> name it. Logan Tron and Chinatown have nothing in common, but there you have no. Gary, Gary Goldsmith perfectly delivering what the director requires in both cases. It's and it, that always I always say that word. They, the director has to have that trust, and. With Goldsmith, I think you get it. Now, there was a little bit of a rocky period during one certain score. Obviously, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I absolutely adore. film is deserves more credit to be honest i think it's the most underrated star trek movie ever made and people for whatever reason like to make fun of it but then they rewatch it like oh it's like more like 2001 and yes. less like a tv show but it's actually it's a very ambitious weird cool star trek movie that so few people give credit to absolutely i mean uh, there was a point during i mean there's many points i think many many composers do this they end up building these scores without seeing parts of the movie um how they do that i do not know but that is i think a common thing if you go back looking at different composers but there's something that happened to uh to jerry goldsmith and um oh sorry my names my names are gone now but um robert wise came in while he was scoring enterprise and it's quite a long sequence. I, I love that. That is just a, an amazing set. And he wasn't happy with it. He said, "Well, this isn't this isn't wagon. This isn't um, sort of uh, ships in the night. This is like wagons. What are you doing? There's no theme to this." And he said, "Well, what are you know about it? I've you know we've got a love theme." And this. he said, "No, no." He says, "Um, I don't like it." Basically, <laughs> so Jerry Scorpius walked away from this, rewrote this piece, and. The day he came back, Wise had a bit of a bad day in special effects. And he, he walked into his office and he was saying, like, oh, you know, um, I've got some good news for me because I've, I've had a crap day. And he went went to his, I think it was maybe his house, I'm not sure. But he sits there on the piano and then replays this, this, this um, theme. And he said, well, why didn't you do that in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted. He went, oh, thank God for that. You know, it's, oh, it's 
bone-chillingly beautiful. It's so fucking good. And when you watch like Star Trek Discovery today and you're watching the opening credits, you're like, where are you, Jerry Goldsmith? We need you. The reason it's so special is because it's fucking hard to do. There are not a lot of people who can deliver that kind of magic. No, and and obviously what was great about that, that that the the Star Trek theme for that, which obviously carried into Next Generation as well, and it's it's still... I think that is obviously when we talk about the original theme from the 60s and we all love and adore that, this comes alongside it and it sits with it. You know, well, I think when I, most people you say sing the Star Trek theme song, most people are going to go, bah, 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 bah. but what you really should be saying is like, oh, <laughs> but people always forget about that original theme song but because it, it's, it's, it's very 60s. I love it, but man, it's... Oh, God. Yeah. And that's, um, what... But there was one time that gave me a smile on face was after watching I think it was um, the first reboot of, of Star Trek, and I stayed to the very end. And then when they brought when Michael Giacchino brought in brought in the original score for the Star Trek TV series into that as well, oh that sounded awesome. That was just brilliant you know yeah it's killer well i'm just glancing right now at the imdb page for jerry goldsmith was just hundreds of films but you've got stuff in there like seconds i mean you've got so many good movies you've even got friggin uh the ballad of cable hogue by sam peckinpah this got me if you're working with polanski and you're working with sam peckinpah and you're working with john Mm. frankenheimer and then you're also at the same time breathing life into franchises like the omen and star trek I mean, this is a truly legendary career, and I don't think we can say I don't think we can sing his praises quite enough. Oh no! I mean, the Omen scores alone are so they so get it, and with with the, with the cues in in the film for, for for the scenes that require it, and those orchestral voices with the choirs coming in on that Ave Santi theme is just oh. It's, it's just amazing. Yeah, it makes me. I, I mean, I, I know you went through some pain and misery trying to narrow down your choices for this to, to five composers, but for me, when I edit this, I'm going to go through a similar emotion trying to figure out which pieces of music to include in the transitions. Like, because Jerry Goldsmith, he's got a lot of very strong contenders. I might have to put two or three in there. <laughs> oh, oh, God, yeah. It's funny because I didn't, I don't know why this happens over the years, but when I originally, I've got the Jerry Goldsmith score, which I bought in 79 it'll be when it when the film came out so i've got the vinyl now and i've re-bought the vinyl which is the expanded vinyl so you've got the whole score now that you didn't have when i originally bought it so there's more pieces that have left out that they've thrown back in again and i just a shame they do that all the time not now though i think they they, they try and bring out as much of it as they can what do you think is the last great score oh god Okay, when did he pass? Do you remember when he... I think he passed uh, 2004, lung cancer, age 75. Yeah. Did he do Brainstorm? That I don't know. I, I can't... Th- that might have been James Horner. I think. Yeah, because the, a... the later stuff I'm seeing is stuff like The Burbs and some, some later Star Trek movies like First Contact and things like that. So he kept working on movies that people really enjoy, but it seems like his sweet spot was like late 60s to early 80s where he really just... Made, made made a name that will last forever. I mean, I think the other scores he dealt with Star Trek will work very well. Maybe the movies didn't work as well, obviously, but the scores still probably helped the film to go along. Absolutely. And and with Rambo and 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 First Blood, they're great. They're great scores as well. I mustn't forget those. I mean, First Blood, it's a long <laughs> road. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, it's beautiful stuff. Close. Yeah, absolutely. It's and I I do have I have got those scores in my vinyl collection as well. 
That just that just awesome, you know. All right. Brilliant. Well, the, the 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 big moment has arrived. The one that's been giving you fear and anxiety, and obviously it has. We uh, we as we said before, depending upon what you've eaten or consumed or drank, your mood might change. But right now, this precise moment, who is the number one? Well, if I give you a quote, and this is from the man himself, he says that his music's like a carpet, and after a while, once it's been become fitted, it becomes invisible. And I've got 25 albums of his, and it's John Carpenter. distracted and totally forgot so john carpenter all right lay, lay it on make the case for john carpenter because i think there are a lot of people out there who would totally agree with you but for me he would have been a, a, an outside choice but yeah go, yeah lay, lay i it mean on us. i i mean it goes back to i think the first time i saw his movies um i think i saw i saw assault on precinct 13 in the, on the tv and i think i saw halloween on TV. i think i might have just been a bit younger to catch them at the cinema and I was into a lot of um, at the tail end of the 70s from when punk finished and everything else. We had that electronic music going around. And it just clicked with me, all that sort of scores that he did. And I think what topped it off for me was when I met him last year. And I had a meet and greet during the anthology tour he did when he does his um, the score tour. He's been doing. I think it may have done about three or four times now. I'm not too sure. Yeah, it's been wildly popular. Like uh, Jay Blake share oh. has been on the podcast. If you don't, he's been, attended a few of them. He has, and I'd say he that that James is. Um, if anyone knows what Carpenter's done and everything, he he's like a a mini encyclopedia. Fashera likes Carpenter a lot. <laughs> he, he does, yeah, and I I, I I totally agree with him to be honest. And when I um when I play the Assault and Precinct 13. The, the beat that comes out of that is that just just gets to me.
but it's one of my per- personal favorites. It's, it's like basically Rio Bravo kind of reinterpreted as like a horror movie. That's right. <laughs> it's exactly what it was classed as, wasn't it? And I think it was very raw because that was his first big picture. I mean, he did do Dark Star before that. Well, quick question. Um, Can you hear that? A jackhammer just started going off outside my window, and they, it's like... I think they try to break in. Yeah, they're trying to... I think they're trying to drill a hole to the UK, but yeah, that is intense. I don't, I don't know if it's coming through on the mics or not. It's not too, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. Okay, gotcha. Well, I'll, I'll mute it uh, to the best of my ability. Yeah. So anyway, so just as you go back to... Going back to Carpenter himself. So his father was a musician, a composer. Obviously, um, Carpenter was taught violin, guitar, and piano. So I think in the background, he always had this um, musical part of his life, even though he wanted to direct movies. And it's ironically, his influence is is with Bernard Herrmann's um, Daily Earthstead still, ironically. And Alfred Hitchcock and obviously Howard Hawks, which is some of his um, favourite directors that that comes with him as well. And with Assault and Precinct 13, uh, the main theme, believe it or not, it's based on Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song and Alice Schifrin's Dirty Harry. Interesting. I, I'm trying to work that one out. I've not heard this Led Zeppelin song yet. I will dig it out and find yeah, I mean, it. Immigrant Song, what... obviously, it's a huge song. I mean, it was used in the trailer for, like, Thor Ragnarok. I mean, people love that. It's, you know, bum, 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 bum. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. Killer. it's a killer piece of music. It fucking rocks. But I never would have associated Immigrant Song with Assault and Precinct 13 because that's such a stripped-down pulse, and it's so eerie. Like, that... And like, um, uh, well, where does Dirty Harry come into it? That's what I'd like to know because I mean, I love Lilo Schifrin. He's another guy that I, yeah, I adore. Like, his... And that, like, yeah, those Lilo Schifrin scores are so funky and they're so. It's, they're seventies, aren't they? Yeah, they're yes, very what... early seventies. But yeah, they, I mean, those are absolutely killer scores. But yeah, with Carpenter, I guess like Escape from when I think of Carpenter, I think of Escape from New York. I think of um, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Obviously, Halloween. But I really love those late seventies, early eighties scores where it's just it's it's so simple and so melancholy and so haunting, and you recognize them with like two notes. They're they're they're, they're just perfect. Oh. The 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 the, the 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 small notes that they use with the season of sort of breathing thirteen, um, which is then spread throughout the movie. I think it. I when I originally picked this up um, a long time ago on eBay because um, it's just not made. You can't find a pressing anymore, and I put it on and the bass was turned up a bit and that it just oh, vibrated my whole room i thought oh this sounds awesome it's lovely you know yeah it's incredible it's just, how like you think like oh you must have like gone into a room and like searched his soul for for days if not weeks or months to, to come up yeah. with these iconic scores but it's just like all right like what's hummable boom like like we got it we got a ticking clock we got to deliver the movie it seems like he he cranked him out really quickly yeah well that that score took him a day that's <laughs> ridiculous. It's, it's, and, it's beautiful. I was, oh, right, re- I was reading the liner notes earlier on today, and I, I did find find this out earlier. And I did. I thought, surely not. This someone must have got this wrong. And then I was reading the liner notes earlier, and it's actually in the liner notes saying that it took him a day to complete the score. That's just amazing. Now, how do you regard his scores when he starts collaborating? Is it Alan Howarth? Is that how you say his name? What? Well, that's right, Alan Howarth. He um, he's got a lot to answer for. As, as a collaboration because of what he's done. Um, Escape from New York, Halloween 3, what, Big Trouble in China, Christine. Um, he's, he, he, he's actually, in his own rights now, I think, got, um, got to get his own recognition. And I love the collaboration they did. Now, do you prefer the ones pre-Howarth or do you prefer the ones post-Howarth? I like them both, to be honest. Although, 
I think one of my er- the early s- score of a sort of reason 13 is is fantastic and I do love Christine and Halloween 3 if you've not um, had had a chance to listen to some of those the track Chariots of Pumpkins is so pulsating and you just turn it up loud it's awesome that's a fantastic track yeah when I think of Halloween 3 I just start thinking of that song that makes your mask like make turn your head into snakes and <laughs> yeah. something so it's hard for me to think of any other music apart from that if you if you um google it at some point and have a listen you'll you'll know what i mean if you're allowed to put any music in on this podcast then uh, that that track just that sits sweet that does now where does the association between carpenter and howard draw to a close at what point do they part ways now i think memory terms for me that what they i think christine may have been the last one but what happened later on when halloween four came around he gave Alan, he gave Alan Howarth the uh, the green light to do that himself. So and and Halloween five as well. I remember he did. Now I can't remember after them was because I, I a bit my memory's a bit sketchy for six and the rest of it, sort of go from that. I mean, I, I I tend to be pretty unforgiving and cruel towards some of the later Halloween movies where it's like I love Halloween one, but it seems like apart from Halloween three. Has any Halloween movie ever had an original idea or concept to bring to the table? Where it's, or are they just gonna stir the pot and re- reinvent what we've already seen a million times before? And it's like, yeah, I get it. Michael Myers, he's cool and he's scary, but the first movie's perfect. Do you have anything else to add, or are you just wallowing in nostalgia? And man, I, I, I've never fully understood. Here we are, forty years later, and they're still making Halloween movies, and they're just doing the same shit again and again and again. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I know what you mean. And although I, I do class Halloween and Halloween Two one movie, to gotcha. be honest, it's fair just, enough. It's just, it's, it is the same night. And um, I just, I love that. I just put those well, two Halloween together. Halloween 2 for me, I like it because it's got one of the funniest, weirdest moments in all horror when these cops just run this guy over and obliterate him and like be burst into <laughs> flame and they shoot. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's like horrific act of like criminal negligence by law enforcement. You've ever seen it. It's like, is that him? Is that him? I don't know. All right, fucking get him. And it's like just some <laughs> random guy. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, it is. It- uh, yeah, and it was funny actually when I first saw that film, and uh, I saw the guy that was in, I can't remember his name now, but um, it was in Last Starfire. You know, that was uh, oh okay, you, you know, you got a good gig on that one as well. Yeah, being I an that movie driver. a billion times on TV as a kid. Well, then rank, rank for me then, since they're doing a top five list of composers, rank for me your top five John Carpenter scores in descending order. Descending order, okay. I'm gonna put brr, Prince of Darkness fifth, which I've recently just picked up. And then I'm going to put Big Trouble in Little China, um, Escape from New York, and uh, I might put Christine in front of Halloween. It might pay me to do that, but I do love the Christine soundtrack. And although Halloween, the the story behind that, I mean, you know, one of the most significant indie movies ever made that's made an absolute mint. Do you know what I mean? And I mean, the fact it, that Jason Blum could produce a Halloween soft kind of sort of reset, reimagining sort of sequel to the first one last fall and have it open at like, well, like $80 million opening or something ridiculous. What did you think of it? I've never heard, I've never heard your views. On it at all. I saw it and I had fun with it, but by the, when it ended, my first thought was, is that it? Like, it's all y'all going to do? I kept hoping they would add something new 
that would make it their own, but at the same time still feeling like Halloween because I was all in on the hype. I was all in on the trailer. And I love seeing Jamie Lee Curtis back in action. But I, yeah. I'm a big believer of once you, whether it's a series of comics or movies, whatever the case may be, no matter how shitty the various entries in a franchise might be, they're canon and you, you find a way to embrace them or... I don't know. You, you got to find a way to live with it. But just these, like when they, when they start disregarding movies, like with like Terminator coming up, how they're disregarding everything past number two, or yeah, like yeah. with like alien movies and things like that. I I like like, like there's a comic writer named Grant Morrison from Scotland where when he's writing an arc on a book, he treats every single issue that's ever been written as canon, even if it's the most ridiculous shit that you've ever read. And I always have respect that. And I just think that you're kind of cheating if you like take out like your the eraser and erase part of the chalkboard because you find it inconvenient. I would have much preferred to have seen just a Halloween movie. I mean, it's now it's been reset and rebooted so many times. I feel like you start to almost kind of tear away at the foundations of what made it cool in the first place. So, but mm. I'm the wrong person to ask about it because I'm not. I don't drink the Kool Aid on Halloween, in spite of the fact that I think the first movie is a complete, total, utter masterpiece. But there are some people I know who love nothing more than to watch Halloween fucking what was the one after H2O the one where like the, the reality TV show like it's one, Oh yeah yeah. Like, it's not a good movie but they 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 fucking love it cuz it's Halloween. I mean and I even kind of enjoyed some of the the bits in the Rob Zombie movies but I just I was hoping for more from this new Halloween flick and when it was wildly successful I was kind of left scratching my head that it was so successful cuz it didn't seem to have anything special or unique about it. It's like I mean, the only thing unique about it it may have had was that the idea is that, you know, we were talking 30 years on or whatever that this story was going to carry on from, ignoring everything else except for the first film. And that was hard to swallow to a, to a certain extent. I mean, it's a great ride. Don't get me wrong. But um, I don't know. They, it's, they're obviously going to make another one by the sounds of it. And it made a ton of money. So, they you know, they they, they must make another one, I suppose. It's... It's the way it works in cinema well, these well, days. Well, I wish they would have done, and I wish they'd followed the example of Halloween 3, where I wish every single Halloween movie was a different story. You just call them Halloween and have it be a horror story set around Halloween. But that way, like the Michael Myers story would take on these mythic proportions. And maybe like every four or five movies, you find a way to kind of revisit the idea of Michael Myers. But it would be so cool if you had this anthology of horror movies all centered around the, 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 the holiday of Halloween. But you try to have groundbreaking original like like the movie us that just opened this past weekend what if mm. us was like halloween 13 and it just happened to be on halloween but it's its own unique original story like that for me would be more exciting and it's why i've got a lot of love and affection for halloween 3 because they did try to break some new ground that's it i mean i think a lot of a lot of horror movies of today have actually taken note on halloween i mean on how they filmed it and everything else i think it's all staple now of of, of, of opening scenes for movies they seem to have tagged that now, and Carpenter's probably a very proud man for what he's done. Uh, I mean, uh, we haven't mentioned They Live, for example, which is another great, a great movie, and and the score for that very jazzed up, sort of sort of style. And and then you got The Fog, which is again killer. That's a it is a spooky one. That well, and I saw when like, I was like six or five on TV, and I can remember like my older brother and I upstairs after watching it with the lights on, like we're never turning the lights off ever again like, <laughs> we were like, we were so young and you watch it now it's like oh this is just a cool kind of rated pg ghost story it's very moody and atmospheric and it's 
great. I love I love the fog. But as, as a little kid, it really worked. It's a horror movie, and it shook me to the core of my soul. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've just recently picked these up there because they did a a four of them they just released and remastered. So they brought them out in four K. So uh, I picked up these little mini box sets. Um, which comes with like, they, I've, even though I've got soundtracks, they come with a CD soundtrack, a stack of extras if you want to know more about the movies as well, which is well worth a watch. Um, yeah, I think everything's well worth a watch up through vampires. Like, may, I mean, The Invisible Man, I'm, I'm never going to watch again, or Memoirs no. of an Invisible Man. I saw it on TV way back when. I, I didn't <clears> care for it. But I love, I mean, vampires is, is second tier, but I still really enjoy vampires. I'll watch anything from the early 70s uh, up through like the mid 90s with Carpenter. Yeah. No, I think it's. Funny enough, it, it's James Woods that makes it. I think he's, he's awesome. He's, he's incredible. His, deli- his delivery on on that, on that, you know, he's a he's a. I don't know if he's a, what you would call him as like a Robin Hood or something, a Robin Hood style hunting for vampires. People get so open arms these days because they don't necessarily see eye to eye with them politically, and he's obviously he loves sitting on Twitter and just talking shit all day every day. But if you're making a if you have a if you want a badass at the center of your movie, sometimes getting a mean, surly old bastard like James Woods is precisely what you need to bring those parts <laughs> to life. And yeah, he he I love how he just leans into vampires and he plays it straight. He doesn't tri- play it like for laughs. He doesn't consider it camp. It, it, he brings some integrity to it, and I think it, it, it's what helps the movie work. Oh yeah, it does. I mean, some of the roles, some of the things he's done. I remember he did um that he was one of the short stories in cat's eyes do you remember that movie i saw that on vhs like in the late 80s but i can't i can't remember his story i remember the one with the guy going around the building and i remember the one with the cat on the little girl like it's like like oh i guess there's like a goblin that like sucks out your air and the cat ends up fighting it 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 was it was smokers incorporated that, yeah, it's based was, on the Stephen King short story where they basically they start torturing and like doing horrible things to your loved ones to make you stop smoking. Yeah, and they said we're throwing a cat in there, and they, they threw his wife in there, I think, as well at one point, and um, and it ended with him losing a finger. Yeah, and they were saying that was a very very interesting story. Yeah, it comes from his uh, Stephen King's first short story collection, Night Shift. It's in there because Stephen King was a pill popping, chain smoking, booze hound, just maniac for years i mean a horrible horrible substance abuse problems and he wrote that story in a very convincing fashion about a guy trying to quit smoking and it's terrifying but those early short shorts by stephen king are so cool and i love how they found ways to make these anthology horror movies that could tap into those like the raft like creep show 2 not as good as Creepshow no. one but it does have an adaptation of the raft which is one of my favorite short stories from skeleton crew yeah and it'd be interesting to see how the, the tv show creep show is going to go as well Either I haven't heard this or I totally forgot about it. Who's uh, who's doing the show? All I know is it's going to be on Shudder, apparently. They, they've cool. got the rights to do it. So I, 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 I will actually subscribe for this at some point when this comes out. But um, I've just heard this this news just recently. I'm thinking, oh, man, I'd love Creep Show. They're just they're so good stories. George Aramayo as well. Oh, yeah! I've watched it countless times. Right. Loving and adore. I love the anim. I love the animation. I love the framing device. I love the way, the, like the weird kind of EC fifties comics interstitial programming in between the with shorts. Because the, they bring those colors into the into the screen, don't they? Yeah. It just comes out at you like that, and it's like when you see Leslie Nielsen like buried up to his neck. Like I can hold my breath for a long time. It's like all these crazy garish like blue and red colors and things. Oh yeah, that's it. Absolutely. Oh, I it's, love it. it they're, 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 they're just class. And um, I mean, for me, actually, being a teenager in the 80s is the best thing that could ever happen to anyone because you get to see all those cool movies in the cinema. And even though I did see them on VHS, 
and they were a bit wearing at time, but it's it's great. It's yeah, a- I was four to fourteen in the eighties, and in the nineties, because I thought I was really cool. All we ever did was shit on the eighties. We shat on eighties music, eighties movies, eighties everything, eighties hair. And now here we are in 2019 where we're living in this very strange, politically correct, buttoned up, how dare you, like recreational outrage era. And I, I, I did not realize how good we had it back in the 80s where you could I detest do... the times of now. I really detest the way the world's gone. Oh, it's... I don't, I don't it like... It's ruinous for movies. Like in the 80s when everybody's like doing cocaine and acting like fucking maniacs, like the movies were like the last thing people were worried about. <laughs> got away with murder. In that... I mean, who would in their mind film someone getting raped by a tree for Christ's sake? You know? Yeah, you know? and just see, like now people are like, are you kidding me? Like that's in your movie? But, but I saw that movie a billion times in middle school when i was a kid and it never mm. even seemed to phase me I, like i was like all right that's crazy but like it didn't even seem that shocking when i i, I mean i was part of the i was one of the co-founders of the dead by dawn society in my high school we loved the evil dead series but it's amazing just how blase we were about all that maybe people would say we're desensitized but i think people just had a sense of fucking humor in the 80s and that sense of humor right now we're in a we're in a very humorless joyless sexless judgmental period that is just sucking the lifeblood out of film and television in so many ways and that's i think why we go back to these older movies because you can relive where you can stick your two fingers up to them and say well i'm watching this i could you know this was filmed absolutely this is for us and i mean going back to carpenter in escape from new york even i thought when i watch it now it doesn't faze me but if you showed that movie to someone now that's never seen it and they see that that child gets shot at the ice cream van. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I saw him. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if John Carpenter. I think John Carpenter has mentioned it where he's like, "All right, if I were to shoot that scene did he re- again, did he regret at age it? 50, did he regret it or not? Did I'm he sorry. Regret it? Did he regret shooting that scene? Oh, I think he, I he, he, in an interview he was talking about how, like, as a middle-aged man. He probably would not have shot that scene. But as a 20-something, he's like, hell yeah, we're going to murder this little girl. That way you know who the bad guys are. And it's one of those things where you're in your 20s, you're eager to shock and provoke. And he, he just fucking went for it. And now when you watch it, yeah, never in a million years would you see that. I mean, even in the most sadistic, fucked up movies imaginable, like, probably you'd have to go as far as like Lars von Trier before you would find somebody willing to just have a little girl getting ice cream get shot by a rifle in the fucking chest. <coughs> and, and, and to top it off, she was in a Disney movie. Yeah, I mean, she, she would like pop up Escape like which, different strokes and things like that. But she was all she was TV. in Escape to Which Mountain. Yeah, yeah, total, total the, wholesome American as apple pie. Uh, American exactly. as apple pie. And then she was splattered all over the floor with blood everywhere. I think, oh my god, you know what's what's going on here? But no, it's yeah, the seventies were truly depraved. But we got some great movies. <laughs> period. No, yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose this stuff like the probably um, the devils and whatever. We had all these satanic movies that came out. Um, and maybe like the Hammer ones were very tame, obviously, but in their own way, even Twins of Evil and that, they were all, I suppose, very sexual movies at the time. But oh, they, yeah. they, they, were, they were great. I just, well, I think you know. also the movies reflect the times in which you live. And when you have like the Manson killings and the Vietnam War and just all sorts of crazy cultural upheaval, the movies mm. start to reflect it. But I feel like right now irrespective of one's personal politics, we do live in these incredibly polarized, divided times. I keep waiting for that somehow to provoke some really intense creative responses by filmmakers as a, a reaction against these these insane times in which we live. But it just seems like right now everybody's being very careful. And being very careful is, once again, very... It, it, it just... No, no filmmaker ever made a masterpiece by being careful. 
No, that's it. I mean, there's one time I always remember, I've, I've only ever come out of a movie feeling sad once, and I think that's Platoon, that somehow shocked my core in, in a way I don't know what did. And you sort of came out of that being miserable. It's, you know, I suppose that it was the point of showing you what it was like and how the times were for these guys out there. Um, I think it just, it does, it just shakes you a bit sometimes. Yeah, if you watch Apocalypse Now, like, hey, well, you get to hang out with Robert Duvall and go surfing. Like, it, doesn't, it seems like a lot of fun. But then you watch Platoon, you're like, oh, this <coughs> sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Platoon definitely hammers the message home. It does. Uh, but yeah, no, it takes, the scores that have been going, I mean, I say there's, there's loads here that we haven't mentioned that, oh, I probably could bring, you could bring another fifth, another 10, 10 scores. Now, which composers who are active right now, you mentioned Hans Zimmer earlier. Do you have a couple of composers who are at the top of their game here in 2019 who give you joy, as Al Capone said in The Untouchables? Uh, well, Hans Zimmer actually, Hans Zimmer has helped me because I actually watched Rush at the weekend. And after see, hearing that score and seeing a piece of the film on, on screen, um, that, that film blew my mind. It's, it's, it's a film I've meant to watch a long time ago. I know it's 2013, I think. But <clears throat> obviously, Chris Hemsworth is more known for a hammer now than a steering wheel. But um, it, it's, it's a classic movie, and, and the score is, is sublime for that. Um, <clears throat> Is that driller getting closer to you now? Is he? I think. I mean, I think they're going to come right through my wall in, in, any second. But <laughs> there's a weird thing going on where a couple of days ago they discovered like New York has aging infrastructure beneath the city that it's they never quite know what to do about it. And an intersection like exploded a few years ago, but they found out that my street was about to explode. And so it's it's work that needs to be done. But they're, <laughs> they're replacing some gas lines that I think have been there since like 1880 and are completely clogged up with goo and well, corrosion. As long as it's not got a buried cemetery underneath there that's going to freak everyone out. Exactly. I mean, New York, I mean, obviously, whenever I speak to Europeans and I talk about old American cities, people are like, what are you talking about? Like, we have villages that are from like 1,200 years ago. <laughs> it's just a very different thing. But New York has a problem with a lot of aging infrastructure that they're trying to ever, they put a lot of Band-Aids all over it to cover things up. Is that is that down to, the, I'm going to go off topic here, but I've only been to New York once and I went there, oh, probably 15 years ago now. Actually, I tell you, it was just after 9/11. Gotcha. So, um, and, and obviously at the time, then the, the Americans, there, the, they were very sort of hot coals, very, very could be very spooked very easily. And I was seeing where these drains would pop out of the street because of the steam and everything else. You know, I'm thinking it's just it's crazy, absolutely crazy. But, uh, yeah, they built it very quickly in a very haphazard fashion in the early part of the 20th century, and all these skyscrapers were going up, and it's just one of the things where New York has a lot of problems, and, and, and that is that is one of them, but at least we don't have to worry about the chud or something like that, the cannibalistic humanoid <laughs> underground dwellers, but who knows, maybe, that, maybe that'll be next. But maybe as a way of just bringing things in for a safe landing, first and foremost, I just want to thank you, Stephen, for pitching this topic and coming on Wrong Real. But where can people find you on Twitter? Where can people find your show? And give, maybe give people some suggestions of some cool soundtracks or LPs that you're listening to right now that you recommend people hunt down and buy. Okay, so Twitter, obviously, at Steve007. Um, if you're into gaming, then I've got an Xbox gamer tag, um, uh, which is actually the same, so that's Steve007. And the same, and the PlayStation ID will be the real Steve 07. Not on there very often, but I'm more on the Xbox. Our website is popculturegamers.podbean.com, so you can find us there. So we do we do record once a week normally when we if if life sometimes 
gets in the way, we'll be back next week. Um, Soundtrack-wise, I'm looking forward to listening to Reanimator, actually, because um, the, the horror genre at the minute, I'm so looking forward to the, uh, the Kickstarter that's, that's kicking around at the minute, which I joined in with um, last year. And horror soundtrack sort of come back of it. Do I shout a bit louder? Oh, I can hear you. No, because because of my headphones, I can hear you beautifully. So, okay. So, um, the reanimator score is pretty cool. Uh, John Carpenter scores are always worth a listen to. And I've got a, I've got a smaller John Williams collection. I mean, some of those these days are, are always worth a listen to. And um, even Hans Zimmer. And oh, speaking of I John think, Williams, we used to play this game when I was a little kid, bro. We would say, try to sing the themes to Raiders of the Lost Ark, Superman the movie, and Star Wars back to back. Can you do? Are, are you willing to take the Pepsi challenge to hum those three tunes back to back without getting your so head confused? Wait, right, which one do you want first? Uh, get, first, give us um, give us Superman the movie. That stumbles me straight off the back. That's. Absolutely, yeah. It'll be like. All right, well, give give me Raiders. So Raiders go. Raiders will be going like. Nice. All right, give me the Star Wars theme that you get during the opening crawl. Right. Yeah, it, it fucks you up. Like John Williams, it's it's hard. It, you get you get. It's easy to trip over the similarity between some of them. It it does. It, you're right. I've never thought of this. <laughs> Shit. But it's, it's like one of the most iconic theme songs ever. But you can, if you make somebody do the other two first, they're like, "What the fuck is the Star Wars theme song?" Wait, is, well, isn't it a blend of both? I'm sorry. Isn't it actually? Isn't Star Wars a mixture of the two? It, it kind of, sort of is, but I guess. Um, ba, 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 like that's the opening crawl theme as uh, as uh, as well as I as can it, replicate it. it. But if you yeah. sing the other two first, it makes it very hard to even make it come come to mind. Oh god! Well, I've actually I've just recently um, I've I've got a, a new expanded Raider score, uh, which comes with two LPs, and it's in it's in bolder bolder gray, the vinyl color. And that is that is a classic score. Well, if you like the Raiders movie, that that's got every cue in the movie. I mean, it's, it's just fantastic. Hands down, probably the best adventure movie ever made. I mean, you could maybe say Treasure of the Sierra Madre. There, there are a lot of strong ones out there. But I saw Raiders in the theater when I was like, what, four or five years old. It completely, utterly, like, ripped me to pieces and reassembled me in the best possible. I, mean, I was just completely, utterly overwhelmed by the experience and then watched it countless times on VHS and – it's a special movie. They they really uh, tapped into something very rare and wonderful with that one. Yes, and um, it's a shame it went it went a bit downhill. Come the third one, didn't it? Really, was that the fourth one? Sorry. I mean, the fourth <coughs> one. I don't mean talk. I don't mean talk about well, it. Like I mean, no, it's, it's, the moment it's, you see Shia LaBeouf on a fucking vine, like swinging through the through the jungle, chasing vans, like please somebody put out my eyes and st- and cut off my ears so I don't have to endure this nonsense for one second longer. I should actually take it out of my box set and Agreed. spin it in the sky. Yeah, just I mean, I, I, there are some people who like it and defend it, and they're they're entitled to. I just I think um, fucking Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is just 
it, it is a just a, an eyesore. It's an ear sore. It's like a blot on the on on film history. I, I, I think it's just revolting. But that first trilogy, holy shit, love it dearly. Watch all of them a hundred and fifty yeah, billion and, times. and how and how good is Sean Connery? I mean, oh, Junior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just pitch he perfect. Pulls, he pulls every everything he's ever done in his life. That guy, absolutely. Whatever movie he's done, he, and I, he's very much a bit of a recluse these days. Whether or not it's on the golf course, I don't know. Yeah, but, hopefully um, he still like has a, his chipping and putting game intact. So the old guys can't have a hard time hitting the hitting the driving range, but they can still chip and putt. So I hope he's enjoying himself. But in that the jackhammer has sadly made its horrific return. I'm going to go ahead and start bringing this guy in for a conclusion. But we can't thank you <coughs> enough for listening to this podcast. Definitely hunt down these scores. Definitely hunt down these composers. It's an inexhaustible topic, and I'm just looking forward to putting this episode together and getting to whip out some samples of all their fine work. But if you enjoyed this, please consider subscribing to our channel. And if you want to hear more, you can always find me on my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. Last night we did a Dune live stream with Bill Scurry and Adam Rakoff and a ton of people who are contributors uh, to Wrong Reel all popped into the chat, and we had an absolute blast. And we'll be doing a lot more of that in the future. And you can always find me on Twitter, at Colbrax, if you want to talk about all the above. But can't thank you enough for listening. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.